Hey, Rachel, what's the story with Blindfold? Ruth Aldine? Uh, telepath, precognitive. She was first introduced during the Whedon Cassidy run. No eyes. Yeah, what's with that? Well, I mean, historically, blindness is coupled pretty closely with the whole precognitive thing, especially in what's probably her family. Her family? Assuming she's actually Destiny's granddaughter. That's never actually been explicitly confirmed, but it's pretty heavily implied. Huh. And the weird syntax, is that part of the whole precognitive thing, too? What? No, no, no. That's because her brother ripped apart her mind during his execution. How's that work? It's complicated. Honestly, I'm pretty fuzzy on the details, but I imagine Cy Spurrier would know. Yeah, good call. Hey, Cy, so what's the deal with Blindfold and her brother? Oh, it's very simple. Uh, Luca was this hateful, racist, bigoted little shit who hated his mutant sister, killed his own mother, got executed for his trouble, and in some gloriously ambiguous way, which may arguably hint that he himself was a mutant, because can you feel the irony, was magically able to rip out a decent portion of Ruth's powers, most particularly her ability to perceive and manipulate chaotic Brownian chains of reaction, thereafter using them to distill his own essence <gasps> into an abstract motive force occupying his own disembodied eyeballs and then go swooping off to cook up trouble. I mean, that's... Pretty much an average Friday night where I come from. Damn, how'd they end up stopping him? Oh, that's even more straightforward. See, Legion's splintered and frankly rather messy relationship with reality meant he was partially invisible to Luca's chaos-controlling skills. By setting up this exquisitely complicated chain of events involving a bare-knuckle brawl with Cyclops, a team of cameramen, some really icky human-animal fusions, and a completely fabricated new mutant, David flushed Luca out of hiding, trapped him in a big bubble of stasis, which, as plans go, was rather nifty, except the whole thing got completely bollocks when Cyclops played his own psychic Trojan horse trump card, long story, and cracked Legion's brain wide open. Luca's incorporeal self was possessed by one of Legion's most problematic split personalities, who'd been itching to escape the whole time and who who cheerfully went on to bring about the shimmering, seething, bubbling heat death of the entire megaverse. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 44th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time, we're going to be going through the next arc of New Mutants, where we've been covering. And this is the arc that first introduced David Haller, Legion. And with us today to talk about Legion, we have arguably, I would say at this point, the leading expert on that character. And that is Cy Spurrier, who is just now wrapping up his run on X-Force. But before that, a 25-issue run on X-Men Legacy with Legion as its protagonist. So Cy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's start, I guess, with some background on Legion and also on where we are in New Mutants, because it's been a while since we've looked at this title. We were in Secret Wars last episode. We very much were, and I wasn't sure we would ever escape. Yeah, that was a hell of a thing. <laughs> it was. So we're going to get started by just talking about the first appearance of Legion in these issues of New Mutants. And Sai, you're welcome to, ju to jump in at any point. And after that, we will talk to you about your run on X-Men Legacy. The stuff we're covering right now takes place after Secret Wars 1, well after it, but a little bit before Secret Wars 2 starts. We first encountered David in New Mutants 25, and there we learned a couple things about him. First of all, that he is Charles Xavier and Gabrielle Haller's kid. Now, we've seen Gabrielle Haller before. That was an Uncanny X-Men number 161, where Xavier flashes back while he's got a brood embryo gestating inside him, as one does, to remember a time that he and Magneto, 20 years ago, were working in Israel, and he helped Gabrielle Haller, who was a Holocaust survivor, sort of break through some of the psychological trauma she'd been dealing with. Immediately after which, they entered into what may be the least ethical or romantic relationship to date in X-Men. Yes, indeed. And that's actually going to be addressed pretty well in this arc. That's David Haller. Xavier at this point does not know that he exists. All we know about him at this point is Xavier doesn't know about him. He's a mutant of some sort, and according to his mother, he's profoundly autistic. It's very, very awkward. Some of the terminologies they sling around in this stuff, it's kind of delivered quite casually as if these words don't really mean anything in out of context at this point. Yeah, and I mean, that's something we definitely see in comics all the time, but also just in fiction all the time. Like, the thing I've always seen with my bachelors in psychology that I never use um, <laughs> is uh, the conflation of schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. They are not, in fact, the same thing, but in fiction, like, 99% of the time is portrayed like they are. Well, and it's got something that we've seen before in Claremont's run, which is the idea of an instigating event, because we, we had that with Proteus, too and sort of the idea that he's twisted because he was conceived by rape and with Legion it's because he went through this horrible trauma as a, a very small child. As far as where we are in New Mutants right now, now at this point, the team as it's existed throughout most of the run, those core nine characters, is pretty much assembled. That being said, in most storylines, we're just seeing a few of them at a time, which I guess when you have nine main characters kind of makes sense. So with us here, we've got 
Cypher and Warlock, Wolfsbane, Mirage. Is she Mirage these days? What is Danielle Moonstar's code name right now? Because she goes through them like Kitty Pride goes through costumes. Um, I think at this point she is finally Mirage. She is no longer Psyche or the briefly used Spellbinder. And Professor Xavier, who is currently on his feet and walking. And that was after he got his body destroyed by the Brood and then rebuilt by the Shi'ar, although he's not in great shape these days. And Uncanny X-Men around this time, he'd been beaten literally to death by a bunch of racist jerks and resurrected by the Morlock's very own sewer wizard. Who brought him back, dressed him up in bondage gear, and returned him to the wild. That's basically what we have to look forward to in America with Obamacare. Bondage gear, <laughs> sewer wizards, yeah, yeah. I am pro-Obamacare on those standards. See, if, if people only knew, you know, everyone supports all the individual elements, but some people are still iffy on the whole thing. They just need to pay attention to the bondage gear. Sai, I think you can speak to this as you live in an actually advanced nation in terms of this stuff. So socialized healthcare is just like super glam, right? Pretty much. I mean, we live in one of those boring European countries where you're not allowed to be ill or dead. There's always some meddlesome government bureaucrat who comes along and insists on making you better. So yeah, we're looking over at you guys in envy with your freedom and your liberty to fail horribly and die without anybody scraping you up afterwards. So uh, keep it up, guys. It's good stuff. But my question and what I feel is sort of the direct tie to the X-Men is whether the healthcare system also believes in compulsory fancy 80s punk wear and or wizard costumes. Yes. In fact, several times I have been struck by lightning. It happens a great deal in London. It's a very rainy and stormy city. Woken up with a mohawk. See, that's civilization right there. It's true. So speaking of life, the world, and potentially problematic storylines, uh, New Mutants 26 opens with Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander. Oh, yeah. So you may remember those characters from the Demon Bear Saga. They were respectively a police officer and a nurse who were in the hospital where the Demon Bear Saga largely took place and got turned into Native Americans. Their features and bodies were altered, which was certainly a storytelling decision that a person could make if they chose to do so. Shocked by these changes, they went to sort of retreat to Muir Island to figure out how they wanted to handle this. At least how Tom Corsi seems to have wanted to handle this involves working out in the gym wearing teeny tiny bikini briefs. <laughs> Here's what confuses me a little bit. Like, they're clearly distraught at having been physically altered, which, okay, I can certainly understand that. But if they are, why do they keep their bodies exactly as the demon bear put them? Like, why doesn't Tom, you know, grow out another mustache and cut his hair off and not wear very stereotypically Native American fringed boots? Oh, I can no prize this. He's a cop. He's from a pretty small New York town. It's possible that he's just never considered the possibility of having long hair before. While in some ways he sees this as a co-option of his identity, in some ways it's broadening his horizons in terms of what's possible for physical expression and identity as a man. The fringed boots, I mean, it's 1986. That's just sort of what you did, huh? Yeah. We can talk about the sort of layers of oddness of the cultural appropriation of Tom and Sharon under their current circumstances, adopting that particular fashion trend, and also the dubious decision to wear those to the gym. But you can, if you try really hard, rationalize your way out of this one. In fact, you can rationalize your way out of anything. And Rachel, I must say, that's one of my favorite of your skills. So very quickly, they're interrupted by this sort of psychic scream from a face they've never seen before. They realize quickly that it's coming from David Haller, the teenage boy who's being cared for by Moira McTaggart on Muir Island, Moira being the scientist who's Xavier's old colleague. And they go in to find him basically poltergeisting it up with a bunch of stuff telekinetically floating around the room, and pretty soon bursting into flame and blowing up half the building. Meanwhile, when last we left our heroes, Banshee had been kidnapped by Thunderbird, James Pradstar, John Pradstar's younger brother, in a ploy for revenge on Xavier. So they're returning Banshee home. And once again, this is very much referencing an Uncanny X-Men storyline, because as we've described before, the two books talk about each other all the time at this point. And that is only going to happen more as we go into Secret Wars 2. We've also got my single favorite scene in any X-Book ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think Reverend Craig showing up and yelling at Rain was such a great scene. What? But... No, 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 not that. Oh, okay, what is it then? It's later. Do you want to talk about Reverend Craig first? I can wait. Well, I've been waiting 44 episodes to talk about this. <laughs> so, yes, everyone shows up and they have these warm welcomes. And Rain, who is sort of the surrogate daughter of Moira, is a little put off because Moira and Banshee, who have been partners and lovers for a long time now, are having this heartfelt reunion now that he's safe. She feels a little ignored, but Moira is quick to comfort her and say, no, you're, you're always going to be my daughter and I love you because Moira is pretty much the best. So meanwhile, during all of this, Warlock is getting increasingly agitated. 
And he's expressing this with little Sienkiewicz jaggedy word balloons that just have pictures of a bird in them. What Danny finally figures out is Warlock is really worried that the Blackbird, their plane, is going to be lonely. He finally goes back to talk to it and says, Self wishes to express thanks to you, noble entity, for transporting self and companions to this habitat. It is a shame you cannot change shape like self and accompany us further. Self will visit you from time to time if you will like, so you will not be lonely. Goodbye, Blackbird. <laughs> I, as someone who, as a small child, would dress my matchbox cars in doll clothing and occasionally bring them like to bed with me, I kind of identify with this. <laughs> Warlock is fantastic. And for me, this is kind of the definitive Warlock scene. He's just filled with wonder. He's so compassionate. And he's worried that their airplane is going to be lonely. They all head in after Warlock has become more confident that the Blackbird's going to be okay and meet up with Multiple Man, who is the character that everyone keeps forgetting is on Muir Island because he's still a very minor character at this point. What was his origin in the comics? Like, had he really had much context besides being the guy who hangs out in Moira's lab? Um, yeah, I think he first appeared in, I want to say it was an issue of Fantastic Four and then sort of got shunted off after that to be in the background of Muir Island for a number of years. It's funny because he's going to become such an interesting character later, but he's so dull at this point. He's just sort of there. But everyone heads in and they're quickly introduced to what's going on, which is that Tom and Sharon have not in fact been blown up, but they are kind of comatose. Their minds are pretty much not in their bodies at this point. Pretty soon, the characters meet up with Gabrielle Haller, and that was the character we mentioned who was Xavier's patient and lover for a time 20 years ago in Israel. She's brought her son, David, here. And her cigarettes. Yes, and her, her yes. constant, constant cigarettes and the strange white streak in her hair. All of these things. Yes. <laughs> she doesn't really tell the whole story to Xavier, specifically the part about him being David's dad. Yeah, she doesn't want him to know that, and she's already sworn Mario to secrecy on that. He is having the decency to not look into her mind to figure out what she's not telling him. And while Xavier is talking to Gabrielle and everyone else, the New Mutants are just sort of hanging out at the docks, and we've talked about how this is where Warlock kind of gels as Warlock, and another way I think he does is the art. Now, we've seen Warlock turn into sort of a disguised human form once before. That was New Mutants Annual number one, where he just sort of looked like a dude. And that was drawn by Bob McCloud. Warlock at this point morphs into a human ish sort of i mean he's trying he's got the basic shape of a human down again i really like how awkwardly not quite human he is but while this is going on we also see reverend craig who uh we've met before in rain's first appearance he's the preacher who raised her and basically kept telling her what a demon spawn sinner she was so do we think that claremont knew he was going to end up being her father at this point I think you could, you could definitely read that into it. This is a digression. Let's not go too far. But uh, for instance, several of my editors have used to Claremont as a verb, uh, which <laughs> is to insert a thing which may or may not end up paying you dividends later on down the line when you're looking for things to explore. So anyway, uh, that's sort of all by the by. But he's incredibly good at including these things which may or may not become useful to him later and will always feel as if that was always his intention. It's very smart stuff. I sort of think of that as the Madeline Pryor move. I mean, the foundation's certainly there. We've heard a lot about Rain's mother, nothing about her father. All we really know is that she was raised by Craig. So I think if it wasn't intentional, then it was definitely a door that was at least left open. Speaking of things without doors, Xavier goes ahead and probes David's mind at this point. David's pretty much comatose, and clearly something bad happened involving some kind of power manifestation with Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander. He jumps in there and he sees this sort of psychic brick wall. Now, X-Men, and I guess Marvel Comics in general, have always really uh, visually manifested people's mindscapes in very concrete ways, concrete but surreal, and that's definitely no exception to the storyline. We'll see a lot more of that as we get into it. But yeah, he can't get in, and this reminds him of what he saw in Gabriel Haller's mind years and years ago. And this actually leads into one of my favorite parts of this entire story arc. And Rachel, you know we're talking about this, but we've talked before about how unethical it was that Xavier essentially hooked up with his patient who he had been telepathically attempting to heal. Yeah, and this arc, while it's focused on Legion, sort of the secondary theme of this arc and what we see in both the A-plot and the Legion stuff, it's a whole lot about relationships and power dynamics and consent. And the first and most overt place that comes up is Charles Xavier explicitly acknowledging and owning how utterly unethical it was for him to become involved with Gabriel Haller, which that bit went a really long way toward redeeming Xavier for me. You've talked about how New Mutants Xavier is kind of why you like the character, and I can really see that reading through this because it's not just that he's written as a better person, he's written as a person who owns and confronts the really horrible stuff that he's done. Having him be the one who brings it up and the one who recognizes how completely wrong it was is a significant point in his favor. One of the things I like is that Claremont, you could certainly view this as him 
apologizing for the story beat he had years ago in Uncanny Number yeah. 161. We've seen him do this with other writers, with the, most notably um, The Rape of Ms. Marvel. Seeing him again go back and apply that to himself is, again, yeah, I think part of what makes it such a powerful scene. Totally. Mm-hmm. So given that segue, let's maybe touch on one of the two B-plots that come up in the edges of this. One of those stories is Lee Forrester and Magneto hanging out having a vacation on Octopusheim. Yes, and I suppose we should acknowledge that Octopusheim is really probably supposed to be the Lovecraftian island Relais, but goddammit, I like Octopusheim better, so we're going to call it that forever. You know what? They never call it Relais. It can be Octopusheim. So yeah, they're basically becoming romantically involved at this point, ever since Lee rescued Magneto when Asteroid M fell from space because Warlock crashed through it. Because Lee Forrester is literally the most badass human in the Marvel Universe. She kind of is. It seems to be going really well. She, at the beginning of this, wakes Magneto up when he's sort of poltergeisting stuff around his own room. In a no, not, not around his room. He sends the bed he's in flying out the window. It's very Angela Lansbury. Wait a minute. Did you just make a bed knobs and broomsticks reference? Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> in the context of nightmare suicide attempts as well. <laughs> yeah. We aim for only the most appropriate juxtapositions it's on this It's dark, show. though, man. It's from the era when kids' Disney was really, really scary. It's like that Darby O'Gill and the little people. I saw that for the first time when I was like 15 and it gave me nightmares. <laughs> Well, anyway, so uh, Magneto bedknobs and broomsticks his way out the window. Lee wakes him up in time to save him, and this leads to them having sex for the first time, becoming lovers. When we come back to them a couple issues later, and we're jumping around a bit time-wise, she is kind of freaked out. And the reason for this is that she's seen a statue of basically Cthulhu with a couple of humans as slaves at its feet. And is like, wait a minute, is that the way Magneto looks at the world? That humans are all just his slaves? Well, and she's also acutely aware and sort of thinking about the power differential. The fact that they hooked up at a point where she was incredibly aware of the fact that he could easily accidentally kill them both with a thought or a nightmare. Yeah, but that being said, he's pretty hurt by this. He sees it as a parallel to when his wife Magda freaked out the first time she saw him use his powers and started seeing him not really as a person. Now, as to whether that's valid or not, I'd say that's pretty subjective. But I feel like this is one of those power responsibility trade-offs, that part of having the kind of power Magneto does, it is reasonable for people to be somewhat frightened of you. The stuff that he did that most immediately and recently threatened Lee's life, he didn't do through any ill will. He had a nightmare. Generally, as storytellers, if we're trying to set up a metaphor for some sort of uh, damaging relationship or something interesting in a relationship which is going to cause conflict, you'll perhaps include a scene of a couple of squabbling dogs or uh, you'll find some kind of natural world analogy which is going to tell you something about the way that this is probably an unhealthy relationship in this story she's looking at a statue of fucking cthulhu (laughs) that's that's the level of scary that magneto is it's brilliant i think that's just also like the level of weird that the marvel universe is for something as every day as an unhealthy relationship admittedly a strange unhealthy relationship like that's the valid parallel yeah we're talking about a universe where probably stephen fry narrates shows about the brood occasionally for natural (laughs) history channel (laughs) So while this is all going on, Xavier is trying to figure out what to do, and he decides to take Danielle, given that she has her own brand of psychic powers, into David's minds to try to figure out what's going on and help him out. As he goes in, this imagery is becoming more and more extreme, and also as things get crazier outside, Doug and Gabrielle are sort of sucked into David's mind as well. The external manifestations of David's power are... A combination of telekinetic force, fire which may or may not be real, and telepathically absorbing people and pulling them in. That trifecta is, I think, significant. What precipitated Xavier being desperate to get inside David's mind is that he absorbed uh, Moira and Rain a little bit earlier in a similar fashion to how he absorbed Tom and Sharon. So at this point, pretty much everybody is inside David's head, everybody who's involved in this story, except for Banshee, who's, you know, over there somewhere. But of all the people who are in David's psyche, Xavier is basically doing his best to protect them and hold things together, since he's the only one with the telepathic experience to have any chance of dealing with this. It's pretty clear immediately that he is kind of overwhelmed. What's going on in here is way more intense than anybody was expecting. There's a two-page spread where we first are exposed to what the inside of David's mindscape looks like. And we're going to put this up in the as mentioned, because it is absolutely gorgeous. This is just Sienkiewicz at his best. This right here is why two-page spreads were invented. And I'm just going to go ahead and read all these captions right here, which includes some dialogue from Xavier. Before him lies madness. 
a child's crazy quilt synthesis of Paris and Beirut, one set of images from David's memories, the other Xavier presumes from the young Arabs, supernal beauty scarred by total war. Everything is larger than life, as it would be for a child, David's influence extending to the weapons and machines that ravage the mindscape, making them living monstrous and demonic avatars. Everywhere there are screams of grief and agony as people see their loved ones slaughtered or are slain themselves. The air is thick with smoke and a stomach-turning charnel stench Xavier hasn't smelled since he fought in his own war when he was a young man. How long has David been like this, he wonders, unaware of tears streaming down his cheeks, since he was attacked? But that was nearly half his lifetime ago. How can any consciousness, any soul, endure such torment and remain sane? And if insane, how then can even I heal him? His eyes turn to a huge, darkly brooding dome that dominates the madcap metropolis, and he senses instinctively that it holds the answers he seeks. The trick, of course, will be surviving long enough to reach it. Good stuff, eh? Hard. Heavy. Purple. <laughs> Very purple prose <laughs> in the best of ways. And I mean, I think that this Inkevichron part is is important because there aren't a lot of other artists that could get this bizarre mashup of the real and the surreal the way that Sinkevich does in this. And I mean, we talked in the Demon Bear Saga about just how Sinkevich's art is nothing like anything else that's out there. And, you know, it's been good since then, certainly in New Mutants, but this is the arc where I think that really comes back, when he can really cut loose in this weird mindscape. Now, as far as the Beirut part of this that was alluded to in the captions, what we've learned from Gabrielle is that David was actually attacked when he and his mother were living in Paris. Some terrorists were trying to find everybody from Israel, which included the two of them, and kill them all, including one of the faces, the presumably telepathic one, that the characters have seen manifested from David. When you say including, that's one of the terrorists, specifically, uh, yes. that face. And David responded to this instinctually by lashing out um, telepathically and telekinetically, and in the process absorbed the psyche of one of the terrorists, who's been basically living in his mind ever since. And according to Gabrielle, this is what sort of took David into the state that he's in. Before that, he was pretty much doing okay, but this just pushed him completely inside. Very quickly, as Xavier and company make their way through, a couple things happen. The first of which is that mental barriers fall down and Xavier finds out that David's his son. And the second of which is that they meet up with some new people who aren't among their company. Yeah, now this is after they've been going through the mindscape and dealing with these animated demonic soldiers and military vehicles and stuff and end up getting separated. So Xavier meets up with a man named Jack Wayne, who's like this super rugged, manly, stylish, debonair dude who's uh, very confident and and claims to basically be trying to fix things, trying to save David's mind from the terrorist who is supposedly responsible for all of this. Normally, I'd bet you don't have the luxury of choosing between absolute right and wrong. You go for the greater good, the lesser evil, am I right? Your world's gray and ambiguous, dealing mostly in maybes, might-have-beens, what-ifs, half-truths, because everything you see and do is in and of the mind. This is different. Your boy's in pain and in prison, not like his mom was. This wasn't his choice. The nightmare was forced on him. The Arab forced his way in here and took over, and it's been a nightmare ever since. You can end that. We should point out that That's Xavier... So theatrical, isn't it brilliant? Oh, yeah. yeah. That sort of dialogue in comics anymore. No, I, I love it. It's so emotive. Like, everyone's just wearing what they want to get across completely on their shoulder. They're just overacting in ways that only contribute to the story. Well, and that's fundamental, I think, to both Jack and Cindy, who's the other character we meet in Legion's Head, that they are these exaggerated, performed personalities. Mm. Like, Jack isn't the kind of person who's exactly a person. He's the kind of person who's put together from fictional characters and ideas of this very specific type of very charming, very so powerful guy. He's an extrapolation, isn't he? And so is Cindy, really. I mean, she's sort of the more rebellious, bitter, cynical, angry part of David's psyche. You know, the part that's just so... I guess, almost annoyed and betrayed at, you know, the world not being a safe place for him to be, at Xavier leaving, at Gabrielle not being able to protect him. Um, she also has always, always struck me just from the way she talks and the way she looks as kind of an Anne character. I can totally see that. So Jack is with Xavier, and Cindy has met up with some of the other characters, and they basically realize they all have to make their way up to this giant black dome to get to this mysterious terrorist character and ideally save David. The first thing that happens is that Rain and Danny really don't trust Jack. Rain primarily, I think. Yeah, and she's in her uh, her wolf hybrid form at this point, mostly. There's just something about the scent or the feel she gets from Jack that just does not feel right at all. Pretty quickly, this uh, Arab boy, who the captions finally give a name to, which is Jamal Karami, appears as they all attack him. 
and they do manage to subdue him, at which point the mountain completely collapses, revealing itself to have been an illusion. Now, what is and is not an illusion inside a mindscape? Uh, That's sort of iffy and strange. But Uh, there's also the question of what is David and what isn't, and that's only going to get murkier. And so the characters do manage to head inside this black dome after Doug Ramsey makes a reference to a Star Trek episode he remembers, which I think is a great way of problem solving. They head inside this black dome, and what they see there is sort of the core of David's psyche, and I really like the way Sienkiewicz portrays this. Well, Sienkiewicz and Claremont, I suppose. It's just all of these sort of panes of colored crystal, like uh, rectangular glass-like panes, which are overlapping and moving in all of these kind of organized but also random-seeming ways. Yeah, it's sort of got a derelict cathedral feel to it. Many of these are broken, but strangely enough, some of them have also been repaired. And this is where they start to wonder, well, wait, what's going on here? Because Xavier has really been buying into Jack Wayne's view of the way things are, partially because he wants to, because he wants that worldview to be correct, and partially because his telepathy is so messed up after he came back from the dead that he's not very good at using it. Well, and by something else, he is getting what will turn out to be occasional psychic blasts from the beyond or showing up on Earth for Secret Wars too. Oh boy. So there's a big fight as Jamail reappears, and Jack Wayne just turns into a kind of psychopath and starts being very murdery. And what we learn is that Jamail was originally one of the terrorists who set out to kill David, but since being absorbed into this kid's mind, decided to kind of try to make the best of the circumstances, repair what he can, and try to keep David safe. I like that. It's a very redemptive story, but I think more importantly, it fits the greater theme of the Legion story here, which is that of ambiguity, that of grayness, that of there not really being a pure right or wrong, there not really being a pure good or evil. That also goes hand in hand, I think, with the way the story resolves, which is with David Holler surfacing to some extent, with Jack and Cindy now also having access to his body. Yes, uh, Danny has worked with Jamail and Jack to kind of mend David's psyche just because, you know, the power is manifesting in the real world. It's clearly not tenable. But we are going to see all three of those personalities within David for quite a long time to come. That pretty much wraps up that story. There's one other plot thread we should probably at least touch on just because it's going to tie pretty directly to the next New Mutants arc we're going to cover. And that involves Empath, who you may recall being the worst Hellion getting called into Emma Frost's office to answer for being, again, the worst Hellion, trying to control her mind and having that backfire on him spectacularly. Yeah, she pretends to be all taken in by his I will make you love me powers, and then just says, no, I was totally faking it. You actually thought you could do this to me, and takes away his mutant power, just telepathically locks it down until he's basically learns to behave himself. Not gonna lie, it's really satisfying. It is. I I do wonder, you know, in the context of all we were talking about before, the stuff about... Xavier remembering the the slightly uh, vulnerable position in which he first encountered Gabriel Haller and uh, the admission that he he was really being a bit of a inconscionable prick by using her vulnerability to initiate a romantic scenario. I do wonder whether this scene is kind of a little fractal echo of that with Helion trying essentially the same thing on Emma Frost and and getting his ass handed to him as a result. It's I don't know maybe that's overreading, but it, it feels like it's relevant to all of that stuff in a kind of echoing way. Yeah, I would I would completely agree. I mean, this has been a storyline that's been full of parallels, you know, from Magneto's mm. nightmare uh, poltergeisty stuff to David's thematically, and this, I think, absolutely ties in. Like, this, you know, Xavier ultimately learned to do the right thing, and Empath is still a total douchebag who never will. Although it's complicated by the fact that what motivates her punishing him is that he's been manipulating the same person she's been gaslighting and trying to manipulate his Firestar. That's true, yeah. Things are, are perhaps ethically a little more tangly there, although in this case, she's Emma is solidly in the right. The way Empath responds to this is to go off to the Hellfire Club and attempt to sell the new mutants into slavery. Effectively, and that's what's going to lead us into the next storyline. But for now, since we're talking about Legion, let's talk a little bit about what's happened since and then jump into, Sai, what you did with the character. Oh man, what hasn't happened since? I'm looking at this list of bullet points. So to go through them very briefly, uh, the next major thing that happens with Legion is that in the Muir Island saga, which happens in Uncanny X-Men a little while from now, he's possessed by the Shadow King and ends up killing Destiny. Later on, Mystique comes after him for revenge, and for complicated reasons, this basically puts him in control of his mind fully for the first time ever. And his powers, and one of them at that point includes time travel, which he uses to jump 20 years back into the past to kill Magneto before he could become Magneto. Unfortunately, because he's not Magneto yet, he's still best friends with Professor X, who jumps in front of him, takes the bullet for him, and ushers in the Age of Apocalypse. 
And at this point, Legion seemingly dies. Bishop shows him what he did to reality, and he kind of kills himself and kind of is killed by Bishop. Turns out he comes back a little while later, in the beginning of New Mutants, I believe, Volume 3. His is the story that launches that, with far, far more personalities than we've seen him with before. And he's eventually, at the conclusion of this storyline, taken in by the X-Men, who, mostly using the X-Club, who were sort of the sciency X-Men at the time, attempt to heal his mind— in the process, breaking things a little bit further and briefly overwriting reality again for a couple of days with the Age of X, which is a great storyline, which you should all look up, by the way. It's really, really good. And he's after this storyline with the help of Xavier, some technology he wears on his wrist and a spiritual sort of guru. He gets things under control. He's doing all right. Then Xavier dies. The psychic backlash hits him. And well, Psy, that's where you took over. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? All that stuff. It's probably worth dwelling for a moment on this as a an entity in the continuity sense rather than picking it apart in detail. But it occurred to me when I first approached this story that there's so much tangled continuity and so much, frankly, contradictory stuff about what exactly this kid's problem is, what he's like, what he sounds like, who he is, how he feels, how he thinks. In the context of all of that stuff, it kind of felt perfectly reasonable to just go, all right, we're going to hit reset in a, in a fairly uh, kind of tacit way. And the way that that happened, very luckily at the time, was that Xavier died. David was in a position where he was just beginning to get his shit under control, and it blows the whole thing open. And that's kind of where my, my story with him began. And it became, in a way that surprised me, a really odd exploration, not only of David and his relationship with his own mind, which is ultimately at the the core of the story. It it ends up being a story about a young man trying to come to terms with his own flaws and his own handicaps. And I mean that in the emotional sense rather than the medical sense, although he's probably got those too. But it became a question about how one deals with the idea that one's parent is a saint, a perfect person. And it's interesting. I mean, I I obviously did my homework on David when I wrote this, but I had never read those three episodes of The New Mutants before just now as a result of preparing for this interview. So this page we talked about before with Xavier confronting the vulnerability of Gabriel Howard, all that stuff, it's fascinating to me. David's impression of his dad is that he's kind of flawless. He's this amazing guy who's gone through his entire life doing something incredibly good, trying to heal the barriers, all the rest of it. And David can't compete. He literally has no way of dealing with this towering shadow which looms over him of this perfect guy who was frankly not a very good father to him. And how do you reconcile this person who everybody adores and looks up to with the guy who wasn't there for most of your life, with the guy who was more interested in fighting his fight and and the greater good than spending time with his own son? And and all of this stuff gets tangled up in the the classic Marvel X-Men goings on with villains entering the scene and, and people trying to do all sorts of wacky stuff and the Red Skull shows up and yay, all sorts of wacky things. It ends up bubbling right down to the story of a young man trying to control himself, trying to control the things in his life which appear to be the least possible to control. And that's something that all of us have contended with. And and that's why a lot of people were quite hoodwinked into thinking that it was going to be this trippy, psychedelic story about bouncing through the psychosphere and, and, and all that stuff. And it was. And I had an enormous amount of fun doing that. But... At the end, it showed its true colors in the sense that this was a story about a young man who was broken and it wasn't his fault that he was broken and he had nobody to blame. And what do you do? And ultimately, the only thing he could do was to take control in the only way he could. And I won't spoil how it ends, but it's a sort of pretty bittersweet way for it all uh, come together. That's one of the things I've always loved about Legion as a character is that when he's handled right, and I, I should clarify, that's not always, but when he's handled right, there's just a lot of very nuanced and very personal and like you said very very bittersweet metaphor to be found there and that's i think one of the things i enjoyed most about your run is that amid all of the well like you said all the the psychedelic superheroing and stuff it's all about this character trying to understand himself and trying to decide who he wants to become when all he really has is this figure who's more symbol than person i think that's kind of the first time we've seen him get a chance to do that in the comics because one of the things that i noticed going through all of the previous stories he'd been in, I guess Age of X a little bit less, but pretty much everything else, is that he's been a setting and he's been a catalyst and he's been an antagonist, 
but he's really never been a point of view character. You mentioned at least a little bit starting from ground zero, taking him and starting from scratch. But how do you take a character with that much history and twist the camera around? I found that a lot more easy than had it been a character who countless people had written. If this was a character who was anything less than incredibly straightforward and simple, which of course very few characters are, especially X-Men characters. If this were any other character that had had uh, viewpoint stories told for decades and decades, then it would be very, very challenging coming aboard and doing something interesting and different. As it was, you're absolutely right, David has been used as a walking, talking plot point a great deal. He strolls into stories when they need the impossible to overcome, crazy powerful, but utterly unpredictable mad kid to rock up and shoot some shit and make some bad stuff go on. And the resolution is always calming the unquiet beast or entering the mind and and soothing the fractured psyche and all these things. And and those are really good stories in, in some cases, and they're really lazy and awful stories in other cases. But it was a lot easier for me to say, all right, fuck all that crap. Let's go right inside this kid's head. Let's see how he really feels about it. Let's kind of explore that a little bit. There's stupid stuff like um, you've all read, uh, you know, Saga of the Swamp thing, that idea that if you're going to come on board a famously weird story, then the first thing you do is kill everybody and start from (laughs) scratch and really make a big statement. And I confess I did a little bit of that myself. The one thing I did quite quickly was to give, (laughs) it sounds really obvious and really stupid and really prosaic, but to give David a, a really strong Scottish accent. Because it felt like something that he might have, having spent a huge amount of time on Muir Island. And more importantly, it felt like me saying, here's a character who you think you know, and let's start from scratch. And here is David Haller, introductions, let's get involved with his brain. And it, it kind of worked. I think a lot of people were a little bit, well, that's not how he's been written in the past, so this can't possibly be real. But then they realized that he hasn't really been written in the past, certainly not from his own point of view and certainly not in any way which tallies up with every other version of it. So it felt like a good time to try and create something truly canonical. And I like to think that this will be the version people think of when they when they first think of how David is. One of the things that struck me as very different about your run versus pretty much every other time he's been portrayed, how, mu- how much of the way you wrote Legion was based on kind of the, the diagnoses, if you will, that he'd been labeled with in the past, and how much of it was really more organic? It would have been suicide on my part to try and assign any science to to what's going on to this poor guy, uh, partly because I'm not a scientist and I, and I would only ever get it wrong and I would only ever describe it incorrectly if I did try to assume that he was suffering from this or that or if we tried to stick a label on it, then it would end up being deeply insensitive on my part because I would only ever get it wrong. More importantly, that's not a story which is going to touch Everybody. If I declare that he is a sufferer of X syndrome, then that's a bad choice of work given the context <laughs> of Y syndrome. Then uh, only people who have any experience with that are going to feel any particular relationship with that story or that character. Rather, it felt to me as though we live in a world where everybody has experience, whether they know it or not with what would probably be termed mental illness now because that's such a broad spectrum of symptoms and it's such a broad spectrum of emotional understandings that we're all very, very capable of relating to somebody whose primary conflict is not necessarily with things outside of themselves. It's that simple. This is a story about somebody whose antagonist is himself. There is nobody on this planet who can't relate to in some small way or in some great way. And I've received so many really moving. I end up sobbing at my desk some days because I get these incredible emails from people who have been going through this or that. And just by reading this ridiculous book I wrote about a kid with stupid hair bouncing around and zapping stuff, they've got a little bit of strength in themselves. They've got a mantra which will allow them to focus a little bit more. And that's not me. That's just this incredible kid who wrote himself into my story. And and he wrote himself into his story the only way he could, which was was by taking control of it. And that's at the core of this whole thing. It's about taking control of yourself or at least managing yourself, which is a lot more doable. Who in the real world, when they start to feel sad or scared or frightened of themselves or anybody who is struggling with something within themselves, who instantly knows 
their own diagnosis. Nobody does. The diagnosis is the least important part of coming to terms with what you are. So Legion has, when you're writing Legion, you've got this phenomenal range of personalities and powers to play with. And I'm wondering if you had any favorites and also whether there were any either who already existed or who you came up with who you wanted to do more with, but just didn't really fit into what the stories that you were telling. Uh, it was an excuse to create and use some of the silliest superhero powers that I could think of. And for instance, there was one, I've been intending to use this character as a real character for years, but it felt like too good an opportunity to miss. And all I knew about him was that he was called the Origamist. And this would be somebody who folded not paper, but folded reality and was able to crease stuff and make times match up with each other and spaces match up with each other. And I just gave that instruction to Jorge Molina. And I said, oh, this is a, this is a guy who's a, he's an origamist who folds space and time. And he ended up drawing him as this fucking enormous sumo wrestler. Which, yeah, I remember yeah, that. I one. actually just reread that issue well, this you know. morning when I was going through all of the Ruth stuff for the cold open. <laughs> it's really cool. It's like this incredibly big guy with these incredibly delicate fingers, uh-huh. which I, I quite enjoy. Weirdly enough, a lot of the things that were going on in David's brain, it, it felt like if I went down that rabbit hole too far, you know, Garth Ennis, he did the six pack team over in the Hitman series and he kind of dared himself to create the stupidest superheroes he could uh one of which was dog welder and and the, the <laughs> defenestrator and all those incredible characters you make it a challenge to come up with the most ridiculous things possible i could have had a lot of fun with that but i didn't think it would have served the story i was trying to tell and i'm aware that it's so easy for me to discuss all this stuff and get really existential and grim and frankly quite pretentious about it uh, so <laughs> weirdly enough a lot of the really interesting superpowers that popped up during the run manifested in other characters. Like there's a kid I created called Santi Sardina who has the superpower of taking credit for shit that other people do. Uh, And that feels like just the sort of really quiet, non-flashy, non-exciting, but really, really awesome conceptual superpower that I'd like to see more of. In terms of Legion, yeah, there's. it, it was a grab bag whatever i needed him to be able to do he can do and you get to dress that up in whatever exciting way possible as a guy who's all about fungus who was called the mycologester and all sorts of stupid stuff like that which just kind of came out of the bag whenever i needed him to be doing something fun but it was never in service of the the character evolution because that would have been cheap i think that would have been cheating but it really does add, I think, a good uh, a good aesthetic to the book. I mean, especially with the artists that you were working with, this idea of this sort of prison world inside of Legion's head with all of these just colorful and strangely proportioned and incredibly varied characters inside it. And I mean, the stuff that was going on in the, quote, real world was pretty freaking weird as well. But mm-hmm. just to have this colorful, psychedelic, glorious lunacy inside, I thought it was a wonderful contrast. Actually, when I first pitched it, the idea was that the interior of David's mind was this a city-sized vehicle, this huge train carriage, if you like, which was endlessly rumbling across a desert, and all the different personalities inhabited it and, and were scurrying endlessly around its surface and constantly fighting one another, knowing that the engine which drove it was David's pure self down inside it all somewhere. And we kind of thought about that, and it ended up feeling like a little bit of a labored metaphor because it was it's constantly on the move. All these people are squabbling around the outer shell of it. Maybe it looks like a brain. It was all a little bit too Hollywood. And then we realized that just because you're envisaging what this mindscape looks like, you don't have to see it as a discrete place. It doesn't have to have an outside. It can be a place which is purely based on inside, which quickly suggested the idea of a prison which worked very nicely in terms of the beginning of the story because we we go into it, as I was just saying, with the idea that uh, David has mastered his unique problems. He's getting on top of it all. And hence, he's the warden of his own prison. He's the jailer in this fabulous, bonkers, mad sci-fi jail where all the different personalities are locked up and they're essentially his to command and his to control and use and manipulate and then it all goes to tits, and, and that's the, the perfect excuse to have at the end of episode one, this incredible psychic jailbreak where the place gets taken over by the prisoners, it's a, a dreadful riot, and the warden has to hide inside his own brain stroke prison. <laughs> I'm aware that this gets more crazy the more I describe it, but it all sounded very, very plausible when I was writing it. And it works, but, uh, it works well on page as well. <laughs> I hope so. 
you can have a lot of fun with mindscapes with the way that not only your artist but also the character whose imagination your artist is trying to depict would imagine their own mental universe and there's a point i think towards the second half of the story where david gets enough control over himself to start reshaping his own interior landscapes and, and that's quite exciting because that uh, slow evolution of his own self-control is manifested in a very visual way and that's one of the beautiful things that comics would do arguably better than any other medium but especially when you're talking about these awesome imagination escapes that you just couldn't afford to ever do in a movie so in, in looking at legion and in looking at the history of the character and the, the ways the character has been adapted it occurred to us that there is a disproportionate concentration of reality warpers in marvel 616 clustered in the british isles proteus legion jamie braddock what's up with that it's difficult to answer this question without letting you in on some some slightly worrying truths and secrets. The, the ugly reality is that the rest of the world is just the dream of two guys who live in Hackney just down the road from here who meet every morning uh, and have a cup of tea and a bacon roll and discuss the rest of the world. And as they discuss it, it pops into reality. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a nasty, solipsistic environment. But um, I'm not even one of those guys. I mean, I, this is privileged information for me because I used to work in the cafe serving them bacon rolls. It's all a bit trippy, isn't it? But they do have a lot of ketchup on their bacon rolls, which I suspect means that they're broadly decent people. So I think we're, we're in good hands. <laughs> All right, so we're going to turn this over to the listeners for a second. We've got a couple of questions. Jack Frost 2012 on Tumblr asks, Legion's Big Bad was a psychic projection of his father, Charles Xavier. It's clear this is not the real Xavier, who at this point in continuity had been killed by Cyclops. Even so, how much of this is Legion's own perception and hang-ups about his difficult relationship with his dad, and how much is a reflection of the actual dark side of Charles Xavier, which we've seen throughout the comics for 50-plus years? Uh, well, look, I mean, like like so much of this stuff, it, it was kind of deliberately left ambiguous. This particular entity that uh, Jack Frost 2012 is describing, we kind of affectionately called him Professor Y in the scripts, simply because it was deliberately supposed to be questionable who he was. Was it part of David? Was it uh, part of his dad's ghost that he had somehow absorbed into himself, as he's done in the past with other characters? Was it some external entity which had, had somehow invaded his consciousness and started affecting its own manipulations? Ultimately, and in fact, David sort of goes through all of these options at one point. He comes to the realization that it's really not important, and I, I would tend to agree. The fact that this guy is there, the fact that this guy is symbolizing all of David's problems, these things hanging over him, shadowing him, uh, all the stuff I was talking about before, about having to deal with the reputation of his father is always going to loom over him, and how does he ever escape from that? It's all manifested in the shape of this nasty, sneering, cold avatar of all his own fears and hates, all his own worries, which happens to have the face of his father. And I guess if you think about it, uh, if you if you really think about David's history, if you had to choose a face to hang on everything that is wrong with him, you'd probably pick Charles Xavier's face. And, and that's not a nice thing to say, but it's probably true. You could also argue that if you were going to pick a face to hang on everything that's good about David, you would also put Charles Xavier's face on it. And that's the glorious dichotomy that is David Haller. So we have a second question from Harbinger384 on Tumblr. And I don't know that there's an actual answer to this, but if we can bullshit one, the three of us together, then I'm <laughs> declaring that canon. With our powers combined. How did Legion go from comparable age with the New Mutants to comparable age to the students in the Jean Grey school during Legacy? Time paradox? Suspended animation? Being stuck eternally as a teenager as punishment for creating the Age of Apocalypse? Well, we know that aging doesn't happen consistently in the Marvel Universe period because you know, there's the Kitty Pride example, there's the Artie and Leech example, there's the perpetually six-year-old Franklin Richards, and the theory that the entire Marvel Universe and the time warp is a result of Franklin Richards and his desire to be a perpetual kid and he's holding everyone else in sort of weird temporal stasis, which Somebody's I love. Somebody's actually come up with that theory? That's awesome. And given that Legion is a reality warper, I would say that to an extent, it seems entirely reasonable to me that his physical age would at some point have reverted to expressing his mental age or how he perceived that. I think you're putting way too much effort into worrying about this. <laughs> it's it's, it's what is, we do. The answer is either A, magic, or B, those two guys that I just told you about sitting in a pub in Hackney having a bacon <laughs> roll and imagining the entire universe while so doing. 
And there we go. Official canon from now on until Secret Wars <laughs> breaks everything. Forever. So we are almost out of time, which is a shame because we'd wanted to get it more into X-Force and X-Club as well. But this just means that you're going to have to come back, which yes, I am entirely down with. So for folks interested in looking up more of your work, uh, where can they find you these days? I know you're about to wrap up your run on X-Force, which listeners, if you're not reading you should be start from the beginning. It's worth doing. I think the last issue is going to have just come out as this episode airs. Yes, I think so. I think uh, episode 15 hits the Wednesday before we go to air here, I think. I'm working very busily on some more stuff with Marvel, which I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but it's part of the uh, the big exciting event, which I'm sure you are all aware of. Check out Six Gun Gorilla. It's my, my creator and comic I made last year. I'm hugely, hugely proud of that. It's... um. It's some good. If you if you enjoyed X Men Legacy, then uh, you'll enjoy that. It's all of the same existential weirdness with the added bonus of some incredibly large guns and a talking gorilla. And drawn by Jeff Stokely, yes. Who is splendid, and who I am currently working with again. Oh, wonderful! I'm, I'm so glad to that. hear that. So yes, thank you again, Sai. We will see you again, uh, hopefully before too very long at all. And I think we've also got some other folks to thank. So Miles, I'm going to turn it over to you to do that. Well, you're specifically going to turn it over to the Sentinels. For background, for those of you unfamiliar, there are levels of Patreon sponsorship that entitle you to thanks in a variety of silly contexts. And one of those involves Miles and supervillains. Sentinel 425 detects unknown mutant power signatures in subjects Jamaladeen and Sam. Sentinel 673, deploy Frigid Beam to assist in apprehension. No mutant blood shall be spilled this day, machine. So says Magneto. KDP and Stephen Canales, destroy these monstrosities and free our mutant siblings. Soon the human world shall learn to fear our new brotherhood of mutant kind. Your sponsorship dollars at work. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, and much, much more. This podcast is completely listener-supported and is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. You guys are amazing. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Thank you again to all of you guys, and thank you so much, Sai. Absolutely my pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you, guys. So next week, we are back with the X-Men. As Barry Windsor-Smith draws Life Death 2 and Rachel Summers goes Phoenix. See you there.